Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for braving the elements. Those who, who are here with us at 660 South Broadway, you are, I don't know whether you're extra saved or slightly less mentally well than all of you who are worshiping with us from the comparative warmth and comfort of your own living rooms. Whether you're in our living room or your living room, we're one family, so glad to be together worshiping Jesus this morning. As most of you know, we start each year with a time of prayer, fasting, consecration, focusing on on that first line of our mission to live with Jesus and renew that consecration and personal devotion as top focus. We used the 23rd Psalm this year as the prism through which we approached that topic and found in those familiar verses some real meaty truth about what it means to live for Jesus. Well, we looked last week at verses 5 and 6. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And we talked about how that table is a metaphor woven throughout Scripture for God's kingdom. And in case you don't believe me, listen to what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 22 as he was talking to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So it's not a metaphor for the kingdom because I say it is. It's a metaphor for the kingdom because Jesus said that it is. And then he goes on to develop that idea in several other places. So what we're doing this February is a sort of spin-off series, kind of like the Mandalorian, you know, spins off of Star Wars and takes one character who's intriguing and mysterious and goes deep on that subject. We're spinning off from verse 5 that God has prepared a table before us, like we talked about last week, right here, right now, in the presence of our enemies, he invites us to that table. What does that mean for us as we look to live with Jesus in the context of family? Because he doesn't ask us to live with him on a mountaintop alone or in a cloistered room. We go there to those places, but we live in family, and that's how the kingdom is lived out. So what does that look like? That's what we're going to talk about in this series, The Banquet Table. And as I was studying for th this subject last week, I was reminded of a dinner party Mari and I had with some, some of our oldest and dearest friends a few weeks ago. We've known them for much of our adult lives, and both of us were a part of their wedding many 15, 16 years ago. And they are remarkable for many reasons, one of which is that they are, as they describe it, an unlikely, unsuspecting interracial couple because they both appear and indeed are black, but neither has um, uh, the same ethnic story as the other or as most African Americans. The wife, our friend, she is fully Ethiopian. Her parents are first-generation Ethiopians, so she was raised in Ethiopian culture with those traditions, perspectives, and norms. And then her husband is African-American on his father's side. His mother is Filipino. And so his culture 
at home growing up was infused by Filipino culture, food, traditions, values, and then his dad by American Southern black culture. And so they've had to learn, as they tell it, to live together in unity from across multiple cultural divides. That reality that is the strength and so much of the beauty of their family now as they're raising their daughter, um, it was brought into sharp focus at the time of their wedding. Their wedding was a festive occasion. They're very social people that are loved by many, and they wanted to honor all of the cultural traditions that are expressed by their family, and they describe those as four. As I talked to him about it this week and asked him, what was that like? He said there was Ethiopian culture, there is Filipino culture, there's African-American culture, and then there's majority white American culture in which both of them have spent most of their lives living here on the front range. And so they wanted folks from each of those culture traditions and from others as well to feel honored and welcomed, and they brought them together, and they did it at the most remarkable table. It began on Friday night with the rehearsal dinner, which was the rehearsal dinner of the ages. It was a a very elaborate cookout, and his father's family hosted that. And so he said, um, for my father and his family, cooking out is something serious. It's a whole day event. And surely enough, his uncle was on the grill making the ribs and he had a secret sauce that's their family sauce. And I spent the better part of that evening trying to get him to tell me the sauce recipe. And at first I was like, man, this sauce is good. Can I have the recipe? He's like, nope. I'm like, that's funny. That's Seriously, can I have the recipe? He's like, seriously, nope. <laughs> And it's like a secret thing. And so I kept trying to get him to share it with me. Still to this day, I have not gotten that sauce recipe. I love sauce. These ribs, uh, I mean, they lived on in me through the night. I, I, you know, that polite eat a little bit at a dinner party thing out the window. Fried chicken and barbecued ribs. Uh, I pounded them. And so that was still happening in my digestive process when we got to Saturday evening and the wedding reception, which featured a banquet table, if you will, of Ethiopian and Filipino foods. And if you don't know anything about either Ethiopian or Filipino food, spicy. They're both spicy. And so um, there was this this harmony and at times conflict of flavors and spices, uh, I think their goal was that some who come from this tradition in their family would eat this food and others that food. I ate all of it and um, had a joyful evening in my intestines. But at that table, at that weekend, I experienced a memorable expression, one of the most salient that I've seen in my pastoral life of the unity that Jesus envisions for us. It was indeed an eclectic table. And that's our title for this morning. The kingdom is an eclectic table. Luke 13 is where we're going to pick up the teaching from the Lord Jesus. He went through towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. So at this turning point, which we've acknowledged a few different times over the course of Denver United's history, Jesus begins to speak more plainly, less in metaphors and vagaries and more to the point. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And he said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. 
Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me all you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourselves thrown out. Now, this is Luke's rendering of a passage and a teaching of Jesus more famously given in Matthew in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, weren't we your insiders? Didn't we do this, that, and the other for you? And he said, I'm going to tell you Depart, for I don't even know you. And Jesus was speaking unmistakably to the religious insiders, the so-called Pharisees, the teachers of religious law, the people that thought themselves the first stringers of Judaism and that the commoners, the masses, looked to as such as well. So it was a shock to everybody when Jesus said these things. You think you're going to be front and center at the best seats in the tables. You may not even get in. But he said, people in verse 29, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. People will come from places that you're not familiar with and that you don't expect to be at the table, and they're going to take their places. They're not going to come and take your places, like, hey, scooch on over and make room for a foreigner. They're going to come and take their own places. And some of you who think you're going to occupy all of the places, you're not even going to be at the table. And this is a disturbing, jarring teaching from Jesus. No wonder they wanted to kill him before too long. Long have we sat at the Christian table with people who are like us, but Scripture makes clear, the Lord Jesus made clear that his table is defined by difference. His table is defined by difference. People are going to come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they're going to take their places. It's their feast. It's their table. We might have a place, but it's not our table. Have you noticed what Jesus exposes here is our tendency to understand normal with us at the center. I think this is a human tendency, right? When I imagine the spectrum of thought or expression on any subject, I instinctively place myself at the the origin point on the XY axis, at the middle of the scale. And so if it's balanced, what I mean is it's balanced relative to my preferences, There's about as much input on this side of me as there is on that side of me. But never did I question that I am at the table and probably the center point of what's going on. And I think American culture has reinforced that notion. It's more individualistic and more self-serving than any before in history. Because we're so free and because we're so prosperous, we have the opportunity to build lives around us that make us the focal point and seldom challenge that notion. 
That's not to say we're not important or that Jesus doesn't care about our lives, but the churches that I grew up in, I think the churches that many of us grew up in, expressed Jesus' table such as it was in the context not of the differences that seemed to characterize the table that Jesus talked about, but of sameness, a table that looks like me and mine, and maybe a table that looks like you and yours. And we've kind of had a live and let live mentality such that by the time the 21st century rolled around, God raised up prophets like Lecrae who called out that the most segregated place in the country is Sunday morning church. And friends, this ought not to be. This isn't Jesus' way. I think the church that I've grown up in, the church that has been formed by the culture forces of 21st and 20th century America, takes scriptures that are familiar and gives them a slight twist in their meaning such that they change right under our noses and most of us don't realize we have done that. Very few, if any of us, have been the instigator of that change. We haven't woken up one day and thought, you know, I'm going to take the scripture and twist its meaning by about 15 degrees so that it's more self-serving to me, so that it keeps me in the middle of my own spectrum always, right? Like we do this, seek first the kingdom of Rob. It's very similar to what Jesus said, save for one very important word, right? I can make Jesus work around me. Now, nobody ever said that to me. It's just that it's what was modeled and taught by the culture outside the church and inside the church as well, far too often. Anyone else relate to this? I can have it my way. And very often, the way that played out is that one church tradition that looked like me constituted its existence and derived its greatest energy by talking down to another church that looked like you. And so we spent the best years and dollars entrusted to us dickering over our differences and never meaningfully engaging the world outside our walls. And it seems to me that's giving the enemy a win. That's not what Jesus intended at all. But here's what I grew up being told, or at least culture telling me and choosing to believe, that all this about race and diversity, you know, in the kingdom, I don't think that's the point. Like, the kingdom is colorblind. Like, there was another prophet that I listened to and took his words in named Bono, who said, I believe in the kingdom come when all the colors will bleed into one. And I think Bono did believe, and I hope he still does. But the notion that the kingdom come would look like me and my cul-de-sac, I never questioned. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't see a kingdom that looks like that. He sees a very different kingdom. Look ahead to the end real quick in Revelation chapter 7. Jesus' best friend John gets to glimpse behind the curtain and peek at the end of all things. And in verse 9 he says, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. Now, how did John know that they were from every nation, tongue, tribe, and language? Every people group represented. How did he know that? He was looking on. It wasn't as though he was mingling with them to hear their dialects. How did he know if all their colors bled into one, if their culture differences were stripped away with their fallen humanity and it was just pure Jesus left? 
what was evident to him and of all the things he could have noted, like what song were they singing or what was, was the floor really glass and, you know, how did Jesus look? What he chose to render of that encounter was the diversity of the people on the other side of eternity that the kingdom looked like all the nations of the world. And then he goes on to say, make no mistake about it. They were all clothed in white robes. They all held palm branches in their hands. They were all shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God. So these were Jesus' redeemed. These were the elect. These were those who stood before God because of faith in Jesus Christ. And yet their ethnic and cultural distinctives followed them to heaven. That's what Jesus' kingdom looks like. And that's what he's describing with his banqueting table. And that's the bad news he was giving to the people who were creating a table with themselves at the center that looked pretty much like them. In Revelation 21, we get a glimpse of the end state. You know, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. That's this passage. And it says, all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. We bring the glory of our nation into Jesus' city. His kingdom is beautified. It's typified by the vast, diverse expressions of our heritage, values, traditions. When he says nations here, this isn't primarily like Argentina against Peru in the semifinals. This is the most elemental and frequent use of that word in Scripture, and that is groupings of people. People who are distinct and different from one another will bring those distinctives. They'll all bring their own glories to the banquet table. Do you see this? And the thing about that is all the nations have different glory. Sometimes their glories complement one another nicely, like, you know, like marinara sauce and mozzarella, and sometimes the flavors clash. That evening at that wedding reception, I did not choose Ethiopian or Filipino food. I had an Ethiopian-Filipino feast. And my ethnic heritage did me no favors. See, I am Irish, and so I've told you before, my ancestors didn't bequeath me a ton of sun defense. They like lived under clouds for several millennia. And thus, I don't tan. I just had to reckon that in my late teens, early 20s. I pinken and then freckle and then turn white again. I'm like the second or third whitest guy I know. I, I mean, there may be a couple of whiter people somewhere in the Scandinavian peninsula, but I don't know them, all right? I've just accepted this. In the same way, my ancestors didn't bequeath me very much in the way of spice tolerance. Like, they ate corned beef and cabbage and boiled potatoes. Growing up, salt was spicy. And so... The feast of which I partook, I knew nothing of, and I was not intestinally prepared, and I had a, like a second party that night going on in my lower intestines, if you know what I'm saying. It was, it was a, an eclectic feast, and some of those flavors blended nicely, and some of them, because of how I 
have experienced cuisine so narrow, some of them might have clashed. Maybe I wasn't intended to eat them all together at the same time. Jesus' banquet table is like that. It's one giant eclectic potluck. And some of the dishes are going to blend together like peanut butter and jelly. You know, like fajita veggies and chicken. Like they're just made for each other. And others at first are going to be a little challenging to digest. Maybe even a little distasteful. This is Jesus' table. Now, this, at this point, we have to take a quick theological excursion. So go there with me. This is so important. Usually at this point, the thinking goes in protest. Okay, so if all the colors aren't going to bleed together into one at the end, if that protest doesn't bear up against Scripture. Well, isn't diversity really a function of the fall? Isn't that not Jesus' pure and true design? Like the Tower of Babel is where people usually go. Remember this in Genesis? When people were all one, speaking the same language, and God was like, I think they're going to get too powerful. So he knocked the thing down and he scattered them. Isn't that when diversity was sort of introduced as a result of the curse of sin? Go back to the beginning with me. In Genesis chapter 1, the Word of God teaches, God said, after creating most of the rest of the world and the cosmos, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock and the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, has it ever made you wonder when God said, let us make mankind or humanity in our own image to be like us? Who's he talking about? Scripture makes clear and Jesus had the final word, the first and greatest commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So who's God talking about? Him and the little frog in his pocket? Is that like the Queen Elizabeth and like the royal we? Here's something that we have to grasp in the context of Jesus' kingdom and his eclectic table. God made us in his image, and God himself, his image is three distinct and eternally coexistent persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the word of God teaches, was with him from the beginning. The Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters, breathing God's creation intent into existence. From before all time and after all things, God is one. And he is three interdependent, distinct personality beings in one. If you want to fight me on that, we can discuss it. But that's one of those scripturally irrefutable, like major on the majors, hill that we die on truths of Christianity. 
You're not going to find an Orthodox Christian community that doesn't hold out Trinitarian theology. The implications of Trinitarian theology are what I'm asking you to see. Not, hey, I didn't know that God was Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But listen, God himself lived before all time in perpetual, harmonious communion. He lives in unity. And as such, he says, let us, Son, Spirit, make humanity in our image. He created us to express oneness from the context of diversity. He created us to be as different as can be, to be Ethiopian and Filipino and Southern soul food all at the same table. And in that diversity, to learn interdependence, modeling after the way the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit reveals the Father, and they live in perpetual, harmonious communion. He created us in His image for that purpose. Often, instinctively, we find ourselves wishing not for um, unity, rather, but for uh, homogeny, for sameness. Why do we do that? Many would say, well, see, it's, it's, it's instinctive to us. It's in our nature, our true design to gather with people that resonate with us, birds of a feather, right? I would suggest that God's true design was unity out of diversity, as he himself demonstrates three in one and that the fall the curse and sinful nature infiltrating humanity is what moves us to desire homogeny and sameness rather than the unity for which we were created that is an expression of our true design Thus, as Jesus restores us and makes us new and makes us whole individually, he restores us collectively and makes us new and makes us whole. He restores us to that same ideal. If we sub out unity for unanimity, what we end up with is uniformity. Here's what I mean by that. If we take unity and then replace it without saying it, but the idea when we talk about unity is really uniformity, like people who think this, or sorry, unanimity, people who think the same. Have you ever been like in a study group or um, maybe on a board or something like that, and you're like, they say, we're not going to leave this room till we are unanimous in our decision. If we make unity mean unanimous thinking, where we all think believe, hold to the same things, people who have the same political ideals or the same cultural heritage or the same values, traditions, and norms, what we end up with isn't unity, it's uniformity. And those two things are not shades of difference. They're polar opposites. Jesus didn't desire uniformity, that we all look the same or act the same, or think the same, or believe the same on what makes a good and just society, or vote the same, or live the same. 
That's uniformity. He desired that in all of those differences, we work hard, self-sacrifice, and prioritize kingdom unity. So unity doesn't mean accepting each other's ideas and relinquishing our own. I think we've seen a lot of that false ideal held out this past year, and so we've seen a lot of people going away sad. I can't do unity with you because I can't accept what you accept. I can't vote for who you voted for. I can't believe what you believe about the world and how things are going down. And so we unfriend each other and go to camps that more or less look like us. Unity instead is an invitation by Jesus to major on the majors and minor on the minors. To agree to disagree on the periphery and the inconclusive stuff. To reserve judgment and hold one another's experience lovingly. To make room in our own hearts for somebody whose experience of the world and following Jesus has played out differently. It's an invitation to what Scripture teaches. To be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. One of the distinct memories of my childhood is on the elementary school playground, I hung out with the kinetic kids. In other words, not the ones that stood in a circle um, uh, in the blacktop outside the, the cafeteria. I was with the ones running around burning off all the excess energy. And our favorite target for doing that was the merry-go-round. Anyone, which is phenomenally, like grotesquely unsafe and has rightly been banned um, by, by sensible people from playgrounds such that no, no snowflake generation citizen has ever even come near a merry-go-round. Your parents are far too concerned with your safety and you're better for it. But some of you, even some, I mean, certainly Gen Xers, any of you boomers, I know, and, and, and even some of you millennials, you had a, you had a merry-go-round, Right? You know what I'm talking about? All right, so here's the way. We were those kids that didn't play with the play equipment the way you're supposed to play with it, the way the people that imagine, you know, the adults in suits designing it in a boardroom, imagining to play with it. We went, went like extreme games playground. Did any of you do this? And so the way it works is a bunch of us would pile on the thing and hold it. You know, the bars were like, like that, and you'd hold on. And then usually it was the two most athletic kids that could run really fast and were really coordinated, they would run around and around with the thing. Did you do this? And keep running until it's going stupidly fast and then jump and you pull them on. And then the goal was to go to the middle because if you go to the outside, it gets lumpy. But the goal was to try and get to the middle because then it goes really, really fast and you're crazy dizzy. Here's the challenge. Centrifugal force. Like physics was the challenge, right? I mean, all of us, maybe you remember from like 10th grade physics, centrifugal force is that thing that when you're spinning around a circle, flings you out. It, scientists talk about a centrifuge, which is a, a piece of technology that separates compounds into their individual discrete components, right? It flings out like kinds to the sides. And so it happened on the merry-go-round that the force of nature would send like the 
endomorphs to one side and the ectomorphs to the other side. And the thing would end up getting like, like that. And so the goal was always to try and pull ourselves together against the force of nature. Because when everybody was in the middle, it went real fast, right? But invariably, that was the challenge, right? Because you're grabbing on. It'd be like me and Jose grabbing onto each other and pulling. But then somebody's arm, usually mine, would be the weaker one. And like, well, let go. And then you're flung out. And then your friends catch you before you fall off under the thing into the pit of doom. And... And so imagine this. This is Jesus' kingdom. The world spins fast, doesn't it? Culture in the 21st century, the year 2020, even faster. And it would fling us out to our individual component parts by path of least resistance. The enemy is capitalizing on that. He's standing there spinning that thing fast, hoping that if he can't have you in hell, he'll have you on your way to heaven, inoculated and useless, because you're hanging out with your own tribe on the outside. And you know what? Hanging out on the outskirts with your own tribe, after a while, we know it's imbalanced. Whoa, 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 whoa. But at least you can rest easy and lean against the bar. In here, this thing spins like a well-oiled machine. But you know what? It takes energy. It takes exertion. It's exhausting. And Tony and I might eventually end up, whoa, slipping and letting go. But I imagine Jesus standing strong in the middle of the merry-go-round going, here, come here. Come here, guys. Come here, guys. And where I am weak, he is strong. And I'm like, Jesus, I'm slipping. He's guy. Uh, uh I got you. Just, just hold on. Just stay with me. And pulling together from here and here and saying, all right, grab onto each other. And you got a couple here who are strong. I'm going to gather you over here and you over here. Yeah, I know it. I know you're black. I know you grew up in a variety of ways that these white people act like they're never going to understand. I know you're Latino. And I know that when we sing songs that are all our songs and not like we're coming together in unity. I know that's a sacrifice. I know you're a first-generation immigrant from Asia, and I know this whole world here seems crazy to you, but if you all will keep your eyes on me, Jesus is strong and pulling his people together, and then when we grab onto each other with Jesus wrapping around us in the middle, man, that thing spins fast, and that's when we wake up and discover why we exist. And what it means to be us. In John 17, Jesus said, I'm praying not only for my disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. That's the future of the church. You're in the Bible. Did you know that? That's your cameo right there. Everybody say, that's me. That's you. That's you. Jesus was praying for you. When was this prayer? Anyone know John 17? This is the night before he was executed. Famously, we read about Jesus so agonized that he was sweating drops of blood. And we presume it's because he was about to get brutally killed, which is not untrue, I'm sure. But you know what he was praying? This. I pray that they all will be one just as you and I are one, just as they were originally created. You and me, and I in you. May they be in us so that the world 
will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me. Not all their glory looks the same. Like for our friendship, Tony's glory and my glory, very different and didn't often cross paths. But I've given them my glory, Jesus said, so they may be one. I gave them all this diverse glory so that they might bring it to the banquet table and create this rich, diverse, eclectic feast. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. You're like, easy to say then. But Jesus knew how hard that was. It was just as hard then as it is now. It's just a different heart. When you said there's no Jew or Roman in Christianity, do you know how hard to hear that would have been for a first century Jew who was being oppressed by Romans? Jesus prayed that night and sweat drops of blood. And I think part of what was so deeply grievous for his soul was praying this for us. He knew how hard this would be. Standing at that middle of the thing, pulling us together against the forces of all hell that would fling us out and keep us separated and keep us divided by some man-made, devil-made chasms and keep us chucking rocks across those chasms at one another and keep us focused on each other, inoculated from our true design and neutered from the purpose for which we were placed on the earth. Jesus knew. And so this is what he prayed for us. He prayed one prayer that was recorded in Scripture for posterity. And it wasn't that we would be doctrinally pure or holy. I'm sure he wanted those things. It was that we would be one. Because in our unity, the world would see his restoration work in us individually, played out in us collectively, and inviting them to come to the table as well. Authentic unity is Jesus' principal restoration work in our lives. The restoration of our souls that our good shepherd affects. Remember, he makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters and he restores our souls if we choose to follow our shepherd. As he leads us, he leads us here. As he restores us, he restores us to this. And the watching world sees who Jesus really is. From the beginning, from Denver United's origins, when it was an idea in Mari and my living room as we prayed together and, a, and when it was a small group in our basement, our vision statement has been the same. It's never changed. And it isn't going to, as long as I have anything to say about it. And it is this, uniting across the spectrum 
to follow Jesus relentlessly and build his kingdom in Denver. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's not unity so we can be a progressive brochure or feel better about ourselves that we're modern and not racist. It's unity so that we can pursue Jesus relentlessly together the way he made us to. And so that we can establish his kingdom, his eclectic table in the heart of this city that is in desperate need of hope. I'm convinced we cannot follow Jesus relentlessly alone. We have to do it in family. Unity, hard thought, unity. That's absolutely indispensable. Nor can we establish Jesus' kingdom in Denver as a bunch of righteous vigilantes. His kingdom cannot be the sum of random kindness and senseless acts of beauty. It is the expression of Jesus triumphing over this world. And so the family of God, this church is a sort of laboratory for working out righteousness in us, Jesus' character for restoring us. It's an environment where we have to choose to listen more and speak less, to love more and judge less, to hold one another in all of our differences, even where our differences threaten to divide us, even where the world takes those differences and inflames them to the point that they threaten to to be the main thing. Either Jesus is the main thing and he unites us, or we're not his followers at all. Friends, I know how hard this is. I live it too. This is a hard go in any season. Over the last 12 months, it's been nigh impossible. But for the miracle of Christ in us, everything outside these doors pulls us apart. And there are a thousand good reasons to go find a group that looks, thinks, acts, believes like us. But in our coming together, majoring on the majors, minoring on the minors, keeping Jesus at the forefront, learning to love, listen to, care for, hold one another. We make space for Jesus and we make space for his restoration work in our hearts. And this is what we're called to. This is what it means to be us. Amen. Will you stand with me? We're going to pray and worship a bit more. And we're going to talk about these ideas. What does the table look like and how does it function? As we continue over the course of this month, this is the time each year that we come back to the beginning because even though you've heard this before, uniting across the spectrum, vision has a way of leaking and drifting especially in the face of such a strong cultural headwind. But Jesus 
shown me a church. And I look out even in the remnant of us that are in the room and those of you who are worshiping with us house to house all the more. And I see what he showed me. It's a picture of his church united across all the spectrums that divide people, young and old, rich and poor, brown and white, urban and suburban, married, single, children, no children, Democrat, Republican, cool and uncool, Highlands and Highlands Ranch, minis and minivans that could go on for days. This is Jesus' church. This is what he's building amongst us. I look at you and I see courageous, righteous, beleaguered saints of God who have said yes to this. And I'm telling you, what you said yes to is real. It's true. It's not Mari and me. It's Jesus. And if at any point it stops being, go away and go away fast. But friends, what you've said yes to, what you're living, the love that you're sacrificially allowing Jesus to show through you, this is the kingdom. This is the glory that he's given us. And our city is watching. They're seeing a lot of versions of hate. And there is one version of love and it outshines them all. And man, I love how Jesus is shining through you. And may he give us the grace and the strength and the courage to choose it again this year. So Father, would you bless my friends, each one of us in this work as you're leading us and restoring us would you unify us? I pray what you prayed for us, Jesus. Would you make us one as you and the Father are one that in us the world would see you. The hope of the gospel. How much you love them. May they know that we are your followers by the way we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 